0: When we say you do you, there is a lot packed into that, and the reality is that recent research shows that there are about 9.8 squillion distractions and diversions along this journey to discover the identity that God has given to us. And it's important for us to understand that our identity comes from God. It's not something that we create or invent. It comes to us from God himself. And so it's incumbent upon us. We have the opportunity we have the responsibility to discover our real identity. Who is it that God says we are? And out of who we are, what are we supposed to do in this time that we've been given in this world? We've been in this series for a few weeks, but today I want us to drill down and get hyper practical. I want us to really and truly get at what it is, and who it is God's created us to be. Because the fact of the matter is, there's a lot that we could talk about in terms of our identity that you could nod knowingly to, and maybe even, you know, if you get really crazy in the Holy Spirit, say amen to or something like that. But the faint there it is right there. But the reality is very, very few of us get serious and deliberate about figuring out who we are. And so what we're going to do today is, is talk about how do we do that? What are the things that we look for to discover and identify our identity? And in order to get at that, I want to just remind you, if you will, go ahead and take out your program that you got when you came in, because I want to remind you of the definition that we kind of launched this series with last weekend when we said that our identity is that divine gumbo of our personality. Our gifts and our talents, our strengths and our weaknesses, that God purposefully pours into the bowl of our soul. And it is unique for each and every one of us. It is utterly and completely solo, one of a kind. There's never been anyone else like you before, and there will never be another one like you after. We are, by God's genius, creative design, unique. And so it's important for us to understand that as we think about our identity to realize that of all of the messages that we receive, all of the cross currents that we hear and perceive many times, there's only one that really identifies our actual identity. Go back to childhood with me for just a second. We begin receiving messages about who we are. From the moment we're born, our parents begin to speak into our lives and say things to us and about us, and we we take those things on, and for the vast majority of us, those things are helpful, and they point us in the right direction, but you and I both know it's not always that way. There, There are times that our parents will say things about us and to us that are contrary to what God has said But those are the things we hear audibly, and so a lot of times those are the things we we take on and we assume. You move on from parents and you go to siblings, and then you get out into the wider world and there's extended family and then school, teachers and coaches and friends, and we we have all of these myriad messages coming at us about who we are or who we think we're supposed to be to say nothing of media and, and what the media images tell us and paint about us and then there's social media. Social media is so confusing because you know what social media is, right? It's, it's other people's highlight reel that they choose to share with you online, but we compare their highlight reel to our reality. And it can become so cluttered and so confusing if we're not really, really deliberate about what God has called us and created us to be. You know, it was the Greek philosopher Socrates who said, Know thyself. William Shakespeare said, this above all, to thine own self be true. Benjamin Franklin said, there are three hard things, steel, a diamond, and to know oneself. And for all of these secular philosophers, they're all pointing back to the reality of what God has already told us in his word. The the absolute source of truth and reality in this world. If you've got your Bibles, look in Proverbs chapter 4. Because Proverbs 4, verse 23, gives us an incredible insight into what God says about who we are. Proverbs 4:23 says this, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart. Now, this is not exclusively a call to a low cholesterol diet and high impact aerobics. Guarding your heart means that you protect because it's in it's in our heart. The, what the Bible calls the heart is really the the, the core of who we are. It's our soul. And, and it's within our heart and our soul and our core that God has deposited our identity. You see, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that we were created in the image of God and that God knew you, like he knew me before he ever knit us together in our mother's womb before you were ever a gleam in your parents eyes god knew that you would be you in this world so that means that you have a divine echo in your life you are an echo of the personality of the character and the creative genius of god so that means that you have a specific identity that you get to discover you get to live out in this world day in and day out everywhere that you go but the challenge becomes how do we do that it's one thing to say that it's there it's another thing to explore and discover and develop and like proverbs 4 says defend the core of our identity And I think it's important to understand that identity is not the same thing as self-esteem. Self-esteem pales in comparison to identity. Self-esteem is really just how we feel about who we think we are. Self-esteem is how we feel about who we think we are. Identity is absolute bedrock truth of what God says about who we are. And just for a second, I think it would be so fascinating if we could replace parenting by self-esteem with identity-based parenting. You see, a lot of times, we parents, we want our kids to feel good about themselves, and, and that's fine as far as it goes. The problem is those feelings ebb and flow with the incoming and outgoing tides of, of popularity, of other people's opinion, of what's cool and what's not cool, of, of our moods and how things go. But our identity remains constant. Our identity remains who God says we are. You see, it's, it's esteem-based parenting that, that coddles. It's esteem-based parenting that entitles. It's esteem-based parenting that ultimately cripples our children rather than equipping them to be who God created them to be. Esteem-based parenting gives every kid a trophy, and that is a sin before the Lord. Don't do it. Don't do it. Well, but we just want them. No! Listen. Listen. I would die for Emily and Joseph, my kids, and never bat an eye about it. I would. But I don't want Emily and Joseph to feel good about themselves. I I don't. I want Emily and Joseph to know who God says they are. And to live out of that identity. Not what I want them to be, but what God wants them to be. And their self-esteem is a poor, poor substitute for the identity that was given to them by God Almighty. And as a parent, my job. Julie's in my job is to equip them to discover that identity and then to live it out. And to get at this today, we're going to go back to the life of Moses. Throughout this series, we've been kind of tracing the arc of Moses' life as a template to use. And today, we're going to go back to Moses' life. The same Moses who led Israel out of 430 years of Egyptian slavery. Moses, who received directly from God the Ten Commandments. Moses, who the Bible says talked to God face to face. But not only did Moses do all of these things, not only was Moses known for these things, his life is actually a phenomenal template to follow in terms of learning how to discover and live out our identity. You know, the fact of the matter is that every single one of us have genetic markers, DNA markers that set us apart. First of all, as human, we're, we're, part of, you know, homo sapien, the species, but there are also these genetic DNA markers that set us apart with hair color and, and higher, what hair color originally was and height, um, our, our structure, our frame, our quickness and speed or not. All these things are a part of our DNA markers, but We'll see from the life of Moses that there are also these identity, these I DNA markers, these things that point us to what God baked into us at the very beginning. There are a lot of external factors that we have to consider, but what we're talking about today are those internals, those things that God planted within us when he created us that we can use as signposts to find what it is and who it is God created us to be. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look first of all at Exodus chapter number 2. As you're looking up Exodus number 2, I want to remind you that we go to the Bible because the Bible's God's Word. And since it's God's Word, it's, it's our Word. It's, it's trustworthy. It's authoritative. It's reliable. And it's, it's an incredible help to understand who God is and how He has wired up this world. And the first IDNA marker that we see here in Exodus chapter 2, that God gives us, is our past, our past. I'm talking specifically about the parents that we were born to, the family of origin that we were born into, the the heritage that we got. All of these things are a part of who we are. Now, let me rush to tell you, and hopefully this will be encouraging for some of you who are kind of freaking out right now. Our past does not define who we are or our future, but it's absolutely a part of who we are. I want to share with you just real quick. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is where we are first introduced to the life of Moses. The Bible says, about this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. Now that, that's a fascinating passage of scripture. First of all, it tells us that Moses' mama was like every other mama on the planet. He's just special. He's so special. We should give him a trophy. But what was going on here, what was going on here is the fact that Moses was born into this family of the tribe of Levi. Now, what we know about that is that Moses was descended from Abraham. Abraham, who had lived roughly 500 years earlier than Moses, Moses is born about 14, 1,500 years B.C. But about 500 years before Moses was born, Abraham had been promised by God that that his family would become a great nation and that from this family and then this nation, the entire world would be blessed. And so we know that Abraham had a son named Isaac, Isaac had two, two kids named Jacob and Esau. They didn't get along so good. But Jacob, Jacob was the one through whom the promise to Abraham would be delivered. And it was Jacob that God renamed Israel. And, and Jacob, we know, had 12 sons. 12 sons, one, one of whom was his absolute favorite. Now, Jacob was not a particularly wise dad. He made absolutely no attempt to hide the fact that Joseph was his favorite son. And as such, he gave Joseph a very special gift. He made this this coat for him that was elaborate, multicolored, and gave it to him. And his brothers, Joseph's brothers, hated him because of his father's favoritism. They hated him so much that one day while they were out tending Jacob's flocks, they took Joseph and threw him down in a dried-out well And took this multicolored coat, dipped it in animal's blood, and returned to their father to say, Oh, daddy, 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 Joseph's dead. An animal got him. But what they had really done was sold him into slavery. And it just so happened that they sold him to a nomadic train of slave traders. And it just so happens that that nomadic train of slave traders ended up in Egypt. Egypt. And when they got to Egypt, it just so happened that Joseph was sold into the service of a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar, who was second in command to Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet. And Joseph distinguished himself in his service to Potiphar. Potiphar, the Bible says that all of Potiphar's household ran so smoothly because of Joseph's administration. But there was one little fly in the ointment, and that was Potiphar's wife. The Bible says that she was hot like fire in the original Hebrew. And she tried to seduce Joseph day after day after day. And Joseph resisted and resisted and resisted until one day she was so frustrated by his resistance that as he ran out of the room from her attempted seduction, she grabbed his coat and kept it until her husband got home and she held it up and she said, that Hebrew that you brought into our household tried to assault me he tried to assault me throw him in prison she was very dramatic and it just so happened that joseph was thrown into prison and while he was in prison he began to interpret dreams and it just so happened that a couple of the dreams he interpreted were for a couple of employees of pharaoh who were also in prison one of whom got out one of whom did not and it just so happened that after one of those employees got out pharaoh had a dream that he couldn't interpret None of his magicians or sorcerers could interpret. And his servant remembered Joseph back in the prison. He said, I I know a guy. If If you want your dream interpreted, I know a guy who can do this. And Joseph was summoned. And it just so happened that Joseph correctly interpreted Pharaoh's dream to indicate that there would be seven years of a bountiful harvest throughout Egypt. But that would be immediately followed by seven years of famine. And so it just so happens that Pharaoh appointed Joseph, second in command throughout all of Egypt, so that Joseph could administrate and manage the resources during those seven years of plentiful harvest to prepare for the seven years of famine. And meanwhile, it just so happened that Joseph's family, Jacob and and all of his sons, were starving back home in Palestine. And they came to Egypt because they heard that Egypt had resources, and so they came to Egypt to, to beg for food, and it just so happened that the Egyptian official they came to beg for food from was Joseph that they had sold into slavery, but they didn't recognize him because it had, so many years had passed, and it just so happened that Joseph was in the perfect position to preserve Jacob's family. Jacob, who you'll remember God just so happened to have renamed Israel, and, and that's how Israel came to be in Egypt when Moses was born. Now they were born, Moses was born during a time of slavery. The Bible says that the Pharaohs who were there and gave favor to Joseph died and they forgot about Joseph and his family and they enslaved Israel because while they were in Egypt, God blessed them so much that they grew in such number. They grew in such size and mass as a people. They went from this holy family to a holy nation that Pharaoh was threatened by them, and they enslaved Israel. They were so threatened that Pharaoh issued a decree that every Israelite boy was to be killed at birth. He commanded the midwives to kill the Israelite sons as soon as they were born. But the Bible says that the Israelite midwives feared God. They reverenced God more than they feared Pharaoh, and so they let the boys live. And it was into that context that Moses was born, and his mom, realizing that if he were discovered, placed him in a homemade basket and set him adrift in the Nile River. And it just so happened that Moses was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, we've talked about that a little bit throughout this series, but there's another part of the story I haven't told you. It just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter, when she discovered Moses, was approached by a Jewish girl. And this Jewish girl said, oh, look, a Jewish baby. Would you like me to find a Jewish woman to nurse him for you? Because, you know, princesses don't do that kind of thing. So it just so happened that Moses' sister went and got Moses' birth mother to nurse him for Pharaoh's daughter. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter raised Moses in the palace, in Egyptian royalty. And it just so happened that that was the foundation that God would use to provide Moses an awareness and an education of the royal protocols that he would need in order to approach Pharaoh to demand the release of Israel from Egyptian slavery. Now that is a past. Now I don't know where you are today. I don't know what your past looks like. I don't know what family of origin you came out of, but I do know this. Your past is your past. And God will weave it with his will to fashion your future. Your past is your past. But part of what God does in the incredible gospel genius is he intervenes and takes whatever our past is to use it for his glory and our good when we choose to surrender it to him when we choose to ask him to show us how he wants to use that in us and through us this is what god does with our past the second dna marker of our lives that god plants within us is our passions our passions, like what is it that that really fires you up, that that gets you going in the morning? That is a massive indicator of who you are, uh, of what God deposited in you when he created you, what he he gave to you. What do do you get excited about? Now, from the life of Moses, I just want to just real quickly look at verses 11 and 12 in Exodus chapter 2. This is, again, a, a fascinating study, but look at what the Bible says. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. And during his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Now let me rush to tell you as we conclude that little passage God in the Bible is not endorsing murder here, okay? This is not a good thing that Moses did, but it's a great indication of his passions, of what he really cared about. He was passionate about justice. He was passionate about his people, the Hebrews, and how much would those come into play later in his life, in years that he didn't even know where to come, when he would sit as the judge over all of God's people? How... Critical was that passion for the people and the purposes of God when he was leading Israel through forty years of wilderness wandering. That that passion for those people. You you see the passion. Moses was one of these people. I don't I don't know if you're like this. Moses was one of these guys who kind of wears his heart on his sleeve. Like you never wondered where Moses was coming from. There was there were a couple of moments in Moses' life the Israelites were in the wilderness wandering period and they were out of water and they began to grumble. They began to complain and they kind of were coming against Moses and his co-leader, his brother Aaron. And God told Moses, speak to this rock and water will come out of it. And so Moses did and water came out of it and their thirst was quenched and the people were satisfied. But there was another instance in Moses' life When the same thing happened again and again, Israel started to grumble and to complain and they started to come against Moses. And Moses, this time, prayed to God and God said, speak to the rock. But Moses, in his frustration as a leader, tired of the bickering and the complaining of Israel, took his staff that we talked about last week and struck the rock. He he just beat it. He's like, I'm sick of this. Water came out and the people drank and they were satisfied. But God said, Moses, because you didn't control your passions, because you weren't obedient to what I said to do, and you took matters into your own hands, you will not enter the promised land. You will lead these people right up to it. He allowed Moses to see the promised land, but Moses never stepped into it because he allowed his passions to run away with him. See, we have to be really careful with what we care most about. Our passions can dominate us instead of us dominating our passions. Our passions. You know, my mom has done a lot of things in her life. She has been a teacher. She has been a stay-at-home mom. She has been an executive assistant. She has been a high school guidance counselor. She has been a ghostwriter. She's done a lot of stuff throughout her life. But the thing that fires her up the most, even to this day, is teaching. That's, my mom is a teacher at heart. I actually had my mom as a teacher in seventh grade for English and then another class for creative writing. One of the most confusing moments of my life was I had a question to ask like the second day of class and I raised my hand and she said, yes, and I didn't know whether to call her mom or Mrs. Richard. I had no idea what to do, but that was my own problem, not yours. But when you talk to my mom about teaching, you watch her eyes light up. She, she gets fired up. And it's when she talks about specifically talking to a student who's not getting a concept or a principle that she's trying to relate. And and as she continues to teach and continues to whittle it down and and narrow it down so that they can digest it and comprehend it, and all of a sudden they get it. She she calls that the, the moment the lights go on. And my mom gets so fired up about that moment in particular you see what her passions really are you see an incredible sign of who God created her to be she's a teacher it's who she is it's what she does now there have been a lot of other things but her passions point her specifically to that role that God has for her And and he's used it in thousands of students lives throughout her career and her teaching career is a ministry it is She's never really taught at the seminary level or anything in particularly religious. But she has absolutely ministered by using her identity that God gave her. Her born identity to make a difference in hundreds and hundreds and thousands of students' lives. The passion that God gave her. That he baked into who she is. The third IDNA marker that you get from Moses' life are powers. 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 You've got power. Tell your neighbor right now, like you mean it, with passion and enthusiasm, you've got some power. power. Here's the thing. By virtue of the fact that you have a born identity, you are created in the image of God. You, You bear the image, the character, and the personality, the creative genius of God. So that means by definition, you have powers, you have talents, you have gifts. There there are things that God gave you that you do better than anybody else. I want to ask you to do me a favor. Take out your program that you got when you came in. It looks like this. You do you. Take out your program just real quick. I want you to open it up, if you haven't already, to the notes page. And somewhere on this notes page, I want you to write down... Write down three things that you do well. It doesn't have to be religious necessarily. If it is, that's cool. But just three things that you do well. Some of you are going, do I have to stop at three? (laughs) Others of you are thinking, really, three? Yeah, write down three things that you do well. And while you're writing that down, I want to remind you, remember what we've talked about so far, that Moses had this this calling from God moment at the burning bush. It starts in Exodus chapter 3 and continues to Exodus chapter 4. And when when God says, Moses, you will lead my people out of Israel, I mean out of Egypt, Moses kind of argues with God. He goes, well, how do I know? How do how will the people know that you really sent me? And he goes, I I don't want to do this. I'm not, you know, I'm just a shepherd working for my father-in-law on the backside of the desert and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he kind of argues back and forth a little bit. And finally Moses goes, well, you you, know, no, 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 no God, I I don't talk so good. And finally, in Exodus chapter 4, God just kind of drops a a divine loving pile driver on Moses' head. Look at what he says. Verse 11. Come here. Then the Lord asked Moses, Who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. God says, Moses, you've got power. But your powers aren't about you. I gave you your power. I deposited those into you when I made you. And now that I've called you, I will show you how to use those powers. I will give you everything that you need, but you must go. You've got to put those powers to work. You've got to do something with what I gave you. You see, our powers aren't about us. Your power is not about you. My power is not about me. It's about what God wants to do through us and a lot of times what God wants to do in spite of us. So our powers matter. But I want you to, I want you to think about those three things that you wrote down on your notes page and begin praying today and throughout this week, every day, God, how do, you want me to use, how do you want to use those? I, I do these things well. I'm not, I'm not bragging per se. I'm just saying this is what you've deposited into me. How do you want to use them? How, how can I use these for your glory and my good? God, show me how to do that. And it's, it's in that prayer that God supernaturally begins to work out what he's placed in us. It's in that prayer, it's in that exchange with God that these DNA markers begin to show us how to live out what God has placed within us. But, but there's, there's one more thing you got to remember. When we think about our, our past and our passions and our powers... Those things are are hardwired into us. God baked them in at the very beginning. But all of them are tainted. That's the the gospel truth, literally. Our past, our passions, our powers, all of these things that God has given us, they're tainted by sin. There's something within me. There's something within every single one of us that... Wants to decide what we're going to do with all of these things. And that desire, instinctively, ever since sin entered the world, has run contrary to God's will. And so, our I DNA markers, our, our born identities, have a glitch in the system we all have a problem and the problem is what jesus came to address moses gave us the law the ten commandments and and the law the bible tells us in romans the law is great it's helpful because it points out our need for grace if you were to look at the law nobody keeps all of the law And, and so it shows us that we need grace, this grace and this truth, truth and grace, perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, the Bible says, came full of grace and truth, both and at the same time. And Jesus says that our born identities have to be born again, because they're, they're they're messed up. They're jacked up. This, is, this was the essence of his conversation in John chapter 3 with a scholar in the law who lived during Jesus' day on earth, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was part of the religious intelligentsia. He was a Pharisee, but he was intrigued by Jesus, and he he approached Jesus under the cover of night one time. He didn't want his colleagues to know that he was talking to the Jesus guy. And he approached Jesus, and, and Jesus explained it like this. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal Life. Now see Jesus Jesus was speaking directly to something that Nicodemus would have understood. Nicodemus being a scholar in the Jewish, the Hebrew law, would have known that Jesus is referencing here Numbers chapter twenty one. You see, in Numbers twenty one, when Israel was in the middle of their wilderness wanderings, they were plagued by poisonous snakes that began attacking them in thousands. Began dying in the wilderness and they cried out to Moses. They cried out to God for help and Moses prayed. And God told Moses to to create a, a fashion, a bronze snake and lift it up on a pole so that all of Israel could see it. And whoever looked at the snake and prayed would be healed from the snake bites and would live. And that snake lifted up on the pole in the wilderness became a foreshadowing. It became a type of Jesus. Of Jesus who was lifted up on the cross and whoever looks at him, whoever prays to him receives healing, receives forgiveness for the sin that taints and jacks up our born identities. And that being born again is a spiritual rebirth. It's a spiritual stepping into a new life in relationship with Jesus. Jesus. Again, the creative genius of God. I don't know where you are today. But if you're here and you've never stepped into that relationship, you've never looked to Jesus for your healing, for your forgiveness, as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. To just step into that relationship by committing your life to him. You don't have to pass a test or go through some kind of an elaborate man-made ceremony. The Bible says it just takes a willing heart, completely surrendered to Jesus, to follow him with everything that you've got. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And as we bow our heads, if you want to begin that relationship, then I want to invite you just to pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning just right where you are just talk to God and silently in your own words say something like this just say Jesus I need you I confess my sin to you I claim your forgiveness and I will follow you with everything I've got from this moment forward Jesus I look to you for my healing, for my forgiveness. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and eyes closed for a moment because it's it's a holy ground moment. But for those of you who just prayed that prayer, I want to make sure that you understand this is the most important moment of your life. And so it's a moment that that matters. It's a moment you need to mark. And so I want to just real quickly ask you, if you just prayed that prayer, I want to ask you if you would open up the program that you got when you came in today. And opposite the message notes panel, there's a thing called the connect card. If you will, just fill that out and indicate there I committed my life to Christ this week, about halfway down on that page. And here's why. Because as a church, we want to come alongside and help. We want to walk through this with you. We want to serve you any way that we can. And when you fill out this card and then just tear it off at the fold, the middle there is perforated, just hand it to one of our ushers on your way out. Just hand it to one of them or maybe to somebody under the blue canopy out underneath the big front porch when you're walking out. Just say, hey, today was my day. So that we can begin a, a conversation To help, so that you are a part of this particular family of faith. Imperfect as we are, we want to help. We want to learn from you. We want to grow with you. And so, as a church, that'll help us get that started to help you. Second thing is, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to just ask you, if you'd prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand up high over your head, just quietly, just raise it up high to mark this moment in your life but also in the life of this church because there's nothing more important to us than this moment in your life. So we honor that and we celebrate it. As you put your hands down, we'd like to put our hands together to tell you, Welcome home. Welcome home. Telling you, man, it never gets old. It never, ever gets old.